The reading tonight is Luke 13, 1 through 9. There is some present at that very time who told them of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered thus? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vineyard, Lo, these three years I've come seeking this fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Let it alone, sir. This year also till I dig it let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. I'm afraid a lot. I don't know exactly how much in comparison to other people. My husband, Jim, who has a great fortune of hearing about my fears in some detail, often I can tell by his reaction, doesn't seem to share them. In fact, find some of them amusing. Clubfoot is apparently not a deformity you can acquire as an adult. Tsunamis are real, but maybe not something that needs to factor into Olivia's decision about where she's going to college. It amuses him that I need to process the fact that I went ahead and used the tomatoes from the BPA-lined cans. You do know how toxic this is. Off-gassing plastic pesticides, sodium lauryl sulfate, grizzly bears, not like in my driveway. But just when we're sleeping, or in my case, not sleeping at all, in a tent in grizzly country. I'm not like this all the time. There are many days, or at least hours in many days, when I'm not afraid. There are some things that some people are afraid of that I'm not afraid of. Heights. I like to show off about this sometimes. Stand very near the edge of a precipice. Jim doesn't actually find that amusing. <laughs> I'm not afraid of breaking rules, walking alone at night, swimming in the ocean, even, the wa- even when the waves are raging, even at the beach known as the shark capital of the world. Maybe because I've been doing it all my life, my aunt lives there, but I still think it counts. I'm not a chicken fraidy cat coward. But fear takes up a lot of space in my life. And I think it might be one of the most unpleasant things about living for me. And unpleasant actually does fit, but it doesn't seem quite strong enough. Fear is life-sucking. 
Fear is annihilating it sometimes. I hate it. Maybe because my first child nearly died in childbirth, breathed in meconium, terrible Apgar score, and then three years later in a car accident, our car was struck by a driver who fell asleep and crossed the line. Our car split in half. I'm not exaggerating. Miles was in the back half. We had to cross 10 feet of pavement to find him, strangely quiet, still buckled into his car seat. He was fine, actually, but can you imagine? That is objectively scary. My second child had a threatening growth in her spine and harrowing surgery to remove it, after which she couldn't walk for a time or use her hand to play her French horn or the piano. Maybe because of these things, I have never had the illusion that I am immune, or more to the heart of my fear that my children are immune. I am pretty clear that bad things can happen to us. This is not prophetic news to me. Of course, I'm also aware that I'm very privileged as a white, well-educated American living not in the time of the bubonic plague, not in Syria or the Democratic Republic of Congo, not in the time prior to antibiotics or post-apocalypse. I know that my kids have a better chance than many people, and I know this doesn't mean that they might not die catastrophically. I really don't need Jesus to remind me that that building might just as well have fallen on my children. That we might die any time, be overcome by tragedy, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, for one anyway, do not need to be reminded that however morally good or spiritually mature, or how rich or prosperous or successful anybody is, no matter what we do, we may perish terribly, painfully, perish for sure, eventually. You could hear Jesus in the text that Chris read as if he's making a sort of threat, urging a sort of fear. These people come up to him and they tell him about this horrible thing that has happened. Pilate has murdered people, Jesus' people, Galileans, and he's mingled their blood with their sacrifices. It's a horrible thing to imagine. You think Jesus might have used the occasion to rail against the empire or maybe to speak compassionately about the victims. But he says, what? Do you think those Galileans were any worse sinners than anyone else? You think it couldn't have been you? Repent, or you will likewise perish. It's not impossible to understand where people get this sort of dreadful theology turn or burn as it's sometimes called. Especially if one is among the many, 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 many who believe or just sort of instinctually lurch towards this sense that fear is a good motivator. Motivator, I'm sure. But good is not a word that I would really apply to it. I mean, it might help you escape a grizzly. Is that what they say? 
But is what Jesus hopes will bring us to God fear? My relationship to fear is such that that idea makes me sick, actually. It seems monstrous to me. I can't imagine wanting to be a part of any God for whom that would be the basis of my attachment. But it's a very common understanding. One of the most prevalent sentiments behind religion of many varieties. God or the gods are sort of threatening figures. If you don't worship, and I'm just going to go ahead and use him in this case, If you don't worship him, if you don't love him, if you don't give your life to him, you will be punished, maybe eternally, in a place of extreme torture. Or maybe it's just that your crops will fail, or you'll be wiped out by a tsunami. Some gods even demand that you make sacrifices to show your love or appease their terrible anger. Human sacrifices, actually, at many points in history. Your firstborn a scapegoat. The fear of God is an ancient and still very widespread, widely used tool. My dad uses this phrase all the time. That put the fear of God into them. That'll put the fear of God into you. And he doesn't say it as a serious theological statement, but after reading an article in the National Geographic about tick-borne disease or antibiotic-resistant bacteria or the Yellowstone supervolcano or something like, he really put the fear of God in that to those boys and chuckles after describing the condo manager's encounter with some young hoodlums. His use of this phrase put the fear of God into them, isn't offensive to me. It's sort of funny. But I think that it might demonstrate the preponderance of a certain image of God. I don't believe that that is what Jesus is up to here in his reactions to the people who tell him about Pilate's abuse. I don't think he is trying to put the fear of God into people. This is Lent. We're heading towards Easter. Death will come. But does Jesus mean to use fear, the fear of death, as a tool to guide us toward God? I'm pretty sure, and I think I've learned this from studying scripture, that fear does not make love. And I don't think that Jesus uses threats. It doesn't seem like him to me. In the chapter just before this chapter, Jesus talks about anxiety. I like this part a lot. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. Consider the rave and the lily. Don't be anxious of mine. God knows what you need, and God loves you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. And Luke's gospel starts with God's messenger saying, 
Don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. I really believe that the stories in the Bible are about a God that keeps trying to reveal God's self as other than the harsh and exacting gods whose wrath demands to be appeased, the gods of war, the gods that insist on this people against that people, the gods that create hate. And I really believe Jesus comes to reveal that in spite of all God's attempts, we're still enthralled to these gods. And he means to free us finally. Repent of your destructive clinging to the gods of violence and fear. Turn instead to the God of infinite mercy, the God of all-encompassing love. What if God is that good, better than we can possibly imagine? It's just hard to convince us of this. So God has to go to great lengths, like die at humanities, I don't know, death-dealing, scapegoating, self-righteous hands, and then come back from death, so the story goes, not condemning his murderers, betrayers, but forgiving them wholly, trying, trying, trying to impress upon us the love, the non-vengeful, non-wrathful, gorgeously merciful God. Because serving that God creates something far more hopeful for everyone. Jesus wants people to repent and trust this God. Trust is the opposite of fear, as far as I can tell. Fear does not create love. The religious system has used threats and fear to try to get people to trust God. But, oh my God, that makes no psychological, existential, or emotional sense. Trust does not work like that. Threats may seem to come from power, but really they come from fear. The king sees Signs of a peasant uprising. The king's afraid of losing his power. He threatens to take away something that really matters to the peasants. You're afraid your kids will not succeed, or someone doesn't really love you, or someone's going to harm you. You imagine a threat, existential or otherwise. You threaten back. We make threats out of fear because we're afraid. But if the concept of monotheism reveals anything, it's an image of a God that is not existentially threatened. A God who is in competition with nothing at all. There is no need for this God to be afraid. This God may long ardently for her creation to be made whole. But put the fear of God into it? I mean, if you're after love, 
Threats just don't work very well. Even we as parents know this. You see your kid doing something that you think may threaten their future. Even like just getting C's or eating potato chips. And it makes you afraid. So you make some benignish, threatish sort of statement like, potato chips will ruin your health. Or C's won't get you into a good college. It may be really more or less innocuous, but it won't be inspiring. Fear is not inspiring. Fear doesn't make people grow into their best selves. Politicians might keep trying it and trying it and trying it using fear. Certainly the system works this way. And fear might work to stifle dissent, but it isn't creative of anything very good or beautiful or peaceful or loving or kind. Fear may run the world, but not towards love and kindness and mercy. And besides that, isn't it just exhausting? Fear that you'll get wrinkles? You will. (laughs) Fear that you won't succeed? You'll probably succeed sometimes and fail sometimes. Fear that your kids won't be happy? They'll almost certainly be a lot like everybody else. Sad, anxious, blissful, relaxed, full of dread, hope, beauty, and maybe all of those things in a single day. I believe that Jesus hopes to free us from fear, not motivate us with it. We are going to die, and our children are going to die. There is no doubt. But what if, even in the face of this, There is some deep and thoroughgoing way in which we really do not need to be afraid. What's the repenting that Jesus wants us to do? Say that we're bad and we'll promise to be good and bow down in subservience to a threatening God who inspires fear? Or is it turn away from that whole system towards something actually very beautiful, towards something that far from creating violence and division and hate and anxiety and paralysis and living in dread creates the possibility of some sort of enormously good news of great joy for all people. And maybe we actually have the opportunity to repent in that way multiple times a day, maybe even every moment. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem that way to me. But maybe we are really being called every moment out of fear, dread, and anxiety towards something merciful and loving. Or maybe we just need Xanax. I'm not saying don't take the Xanax. Just that there might be a possibility that we don't need to be afraid. And this is what this whole God thing, faith thing, is about. 
Maybe this word love has lost its meaning. It's so overused. But I'm pretty sure that the whole thrust of the stories we have about God are meant to reveal a God who loves us. And it has nothing to do with whether we're good or bad. God takes it for granted that we're more or less strongly tied up in some sort of devotion to false gods. But God wants to woo us with love. Jesus wants us to repent and turn toward this other who delights in us in this very spacious and very serene way with some sort of astounding power, if power is the right word for it. So gentle and huge, if huge is the right word for it, that we don't need to be afraid. Whatever we feel or don't feel, whatever we're caught up in, however much it seems that there's no hope, could we trust this sort of God Clearly not to prevent suffering or prevent bad things from happening. I mean, look around. But trust this God to redeem everything somehow beyond our ability to understand it clearly over time. A God who is better than we could possibly even imagine. Better than some of the writers of scripture could even imagine. So great is the hold of the gods of death and fear over our imaginations. A God so entirely gracious. A God who has nothing to do with violence or exclusion or favoritism, partiality. A God in who there is no us and them. So fully is God for all of creation, us, them, sharks, bears, all of life, rocks, trees, moss, sheep, goats. Words inevitably fail. What does Jesus mean by repent? Turn and orient yourself to this merciful lover. Perish we will, but into whose arms? Fear not, I will never leave you. And if we can't trust, if it is simply not in us to believe, repent, There's more good news. There's this vine dresser who will keep digging around our roots, putting his hands into the shite, adding manure, whatever it takes. Maybe we just cannot get out from under the fear we're so stuck. But there's this lover, according to the parable Jesus tells, this lover who is tending to us. Honestly, it may take more than a year, maybe a lifetime, maybe longer than that. But this is a God whose mercy and love is infinite. Even if you can't believe it, enjoy just a taste of it.